Welcome to How I Did It, where coders philanthropy and social capital team find out how successful leaders do what they do in the world of philanthropy and social leadership. You're listening to David Knowles, partner at Coda and head of Coda's philanthropy and social capital team. My guest in this episode is Rebecca Scott, social entrepreneur and co-founder of Melbourne-based social enterprise, Street. Rebecca is a scientist who turned to business to tackle youth homelessness and disadvantage, and Street is known as a successful social enterprise with a history of impact investment capital raising. So welcome, Beck. How are you? I'm fantastic, thank you, despite the heat. Yeah, despite the heat. <laughs> we're going to be best of worst of both worlds, isn't it? It's oh going to be heat God, and then yes. wet. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Street? Sure. Uh, Street is a hospitality social enterprise. We're here in Melbourne. Uh, We work with young people between the age of 16 and 24, and specifically young people who are kind of at the really pointy end of kind of complexity. Uh, 90% of our kids have mental health diagnoses, 70% have drug and alcohol addiction, Uh, 60% are coming through the homelessness system, and about 50% coming through juvenile justice and prison and with criminal kind of background. So we like working down the the hard end, and what we do is uh, we run a we run a kind of an integrated portfolio of uh, hospitality social enterprises. So cafes, kiosk, an artisan bakery, coffee roastery, and a bakery. Um, a catering company, I think I forgot. (laughs) And all of those are are integrated but also where young people get their you know get their on the job experience yeah but you haven't always done it have you I, I, in, in preparing for this I read that you were once the slime queen <laughs> I, I thought I wonder if I should ask you whether you're to blame for all the stains on my daughter's carpets and things like that look I am I am known to make a very good batch of slime and <laughs> I, I'll be like the Pied Piper with all these you know 10 year old kids following me around with you know buckets of slime um, so yes, I've had a whole other life kind of before getting to social enterprise um, in science and, and science communication. So how did you get into how did you get into the life you've got now then? Oh look, I was I'd been at the CSIRO for a decade. Um, loved I love science, so I, mm. I was you know was very happily working there. But I went to do an, uh, go and do some volunteer work in Vietnam for three months, um, just taking some time off, you know, mm. just some annual leave. I mm. accrued across three years. And I went over to Vietnam to work on a project and then while I was living in Hanoi, kind of stumbled upon a social enterprise without knowing that it was one. Um, Just went in, you know, it was a cafe, restaurant, went in, um, had a conversation with a young person who was serving and while I was waiting for my meal, there's a little postcard on the table and it said that this is a hospitality social enterprise and it's helping homeless young people and, yeah, your meal makes a difference. Mm. And I... I was just like this blubbering mess. I just sat there crying into my rice paper rolls. And it was just really life-changing. I, I literally decided at, you know, then and there that this was the thing that I wanted to do, that it just kind of blew my mind you know, as a solution to homelessness. What, 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 yeah, was it, was it about, because you already cared about what, homelessness, what was the thing that suddenly made you go click and it all just... Oh, I, I've wondered so many times about that because I'm not... Um, you know, when I decide to do something, I, I do it for a while. So mm. it wasn't like I'm flaky and every two seconds mm. I'm deciding to do a different thing. Yeah. Um, I think there were a number of things. One is I think often when we're travelling and we're in a different 
culture. We're in, you know, what people often refer to as liminal spaces. So we're we're quite often, you know, seeing the world differently when we're in, you know, when we're travelling. But also too, I I was always doing kind of non-profit projects around the edge of my science job and had lots of experience writing grant applications all the time, trying to get particularly arts projects. You know, I'm a big lover of the arts. And so always trying to get these little you know, arts projects up and running, you know, using, you know, writing grant applications. Mm. And, but then the other thing, so so I knew just the precariousness that you had when you were constantly grant reliant. But the other thing was as well, um, I, I, without knowing it, I'd always been kind of highly entrepreneurial. So um, I, I didn't know those words and had never mm-hmm. been explained that way. But at CSIRO, you know, it, I, I guess I was being intrapreneurial building projects, building teams, mm. always doing stuff kind of around uh, around the edges and you know of my my job so I'm kind of the queen of side projects. Um, and so I think what happened in that moment not only those things I saw social enterprise as being kind of a solution to, but the thing that probably was most powerful was that hospitality creates this moment of you know this experience where you know you've got this delicious you know it's multi-sensory you're eating something delicious but mm. the you know the beneficiary of that meal was standing right in front of me mm. so it's a highly human you know interactive experience that you're having mm. so i think there's an incredible power in social enterprise and particularly industries like hospitality yeah where the person who's the customer gets to have an interaction with the beneficiary and it's not a pitiful experience. It's not mm. this, you know, I've got the money and you need it, or this kind of guilt-laden, often, you know, that's how it feels for the donor or often for, you know, the, the person giving the money. It's often, you know, here's a person who needs my help, but I feel kind of guilty about their circumstance. But for the for the person, you know, if, you, if I think about a homeless young person, you know, the experience of doing something like begging on a street is, it's not... It's not a beautiful experience for no. the person who's begging or the person who's no. giving. It's not dignified and for the person it feels entirely shameful. But what happens when you're in a social enterprise, you know, a young homeless person who might be working in a business who's now got skills, they're being valued for the skills that they've got. Mm. It's a transaction. Someone's paying money for the, mm. for the skills that you've got. And so I think that beautiful moment when, as the customer you get to see this as another person. It's not some, not having to make this leap of faith somewhere else someone's being helped by my money. You're seeing social change happen before your eyes. And I think all of those things, when you package them together, make for a really unique experience. So I was sold. So from my my first meal, I was sold. (laughs) You cleared up the question I was going to ask at the start where where it could have been that you just went blubbering around cafe after cafe (laughs) everywhere you went on holiday, but that was obviously not the case. No. I also hadn't thought about it in this way but the idea of making something um, is probably quite powerful mm. making something together and being part of that group because there are precious few opportunities to make things now for most people aren't there but yeah. opportunity is possibly not the right word but we don't make a lot of things now we don't make a lot of things together yeah. we buy them yeah. pre-packaged they're augmented reality you know it's a yeah. digital yeah. Um, download you don't really make a lot so that's probably quite a powerful connection and that brings me to the next thing I was going to ask you about which is you're doing that together, yes. as you said. 
but I want to, instead of using the word together, use a word that you use, which is belonging. Yeah. So you're creating a sense of belonging. So can you tell me about what you mean when you say belonging? Look, for the first couple of years, we would have always talked about our mission being to stop youth homelessness. And then we did some research with Social Ventures Australia, and they came mm-hmm. and looked at the impact, but not according to street, according to its young people. So they went out and spoke to a whole heap of our graduates about what Street had done that helped them. And there were seven different outcomes that that became really apparent. And number seven out of seven was stopping their homelessness. Um, And I just remember thinking, but hang on, that's that's what's on our mission statement, you know. But number one, sense of belonging and connectedness and the confidence that a young person gets when they're coming back into their community. And... I think we've seen that now for many years of consistent research, both kind of qualitative and, and quantitative, that when a young person talks about what was most precious to them, the kind of words that get used are, uh, this feels somewhere that I'm safe. Um, this feels like a family. You know, the first yeah. time I felt like I'm in a family. Um, people wanted me here. So I think what we often forget about is when... Yeah, we often think about the marketplace and all these transactions, but we often aren't good, I don't think, at putting kind of human faces on, on that and realising that that as soon as you're excluded from, you know, financial, you know, mm. financial um, anything really, but, but socially, financially, um, as soon as that happens, the downside of that, not just for your you know, financial well-being, but for, for your general well-being. Mm. And... You know, all of us, I think, you know, when we stop to think about it, we we would realise that's true. We know that, you know, we spend more time with our workmates than we do with our families most of the time. And if we're not connected in work, it feels really, really awful to get up to go to work every single day Mm. if you work with people you don't want to work with or you're working in an organisation that's not valuing you or you're not doing stuff together that you're passionate about. So it makes sense that when we're in a place and we're co-creating things together and we're... You know, workplace is not just a place to earn a living. A workplace is a, is a place yeah. to do productive activities together and feel deeply connected to your workmates. Yeah. So I think, yeah, we it was it was kind of forest for the trees almost. You know, it was so obvious once we realised it and it's now very much kind of core part of our mission statement. Yeah. Um, and it's we kind of see it as the foundation upon, you know, all the other things happen, that we're, we're working with a young person on their personal issues, we're working to get them, you know, vocationally trained at TAFE, but we're, and, and we're embedding them in our organisation and giving them kind of work skills. But all of that is held together, kind of the glue of all of that's belonging. What do you think is underneath you being able to get things done? What's the secret of it? I don't, I hope I don't do for the sake of doing. So in actual fact, there's probably, if I thought about the kind of teams that I build and the types of people I like to collaborate with, there's probably actually, you know, four key traits, you know, of the way that I work. So the first for me is always around really big dreams. Mm. It's, it's It's about taking, you know, the 20,000 foot view rather than, you know, the ant view on the ground and trying to reimagine the world. It's really trying to think about what kind of world do we want to live in and and, and imagining an alternative future, really. Mm. But then I love 
you know, I, I flipped a coin to work out if I was going to be an artist or scientist when I, you know, when I was 18. And That's not a very scientific way to approach it. You're obviously not meant to be an artist. Well, I think... Uh, I, you ended up I being love, a scientist though, right? I ended up being a scientist, but always working on arts projects. Mm. And, and even to this day, I'm, I'm always, I'm always dabbling, you know, mm. in the arts as well. So, so the other big part for me is kind of a creative approach to things. So you're not thinking, you know, often I think we don't get good solutions to things because we haven't thought creatively enough about the solutions. Mm. We, we can just get, end up getting really siloed. And I'm interested when you have the most number of kind of brains or, you know, the most diversity around the table, mm. the most different ways of seeing the world. Yeah. And so, so creativity is always a really big part of any team that I build. And then there's always kind of, yep, yeah, we've got to get, it, get, get stuff done. You yeah. know, we, we've got to get shit done at the end of the day. Yeah. An idea isn't worth anything. An idea mm. is only valuable when it's starting to turn into something and it is, it is actually mm. achieving things. So, so we can talk all day about stuff, um, but unless it becomes something that's real, it's got no value. Yeah. And then the other thing um, for me is just having fun. Mm. We're just I I don't want to be at work all day feeling like we're some earnest do gooder bleeding hearts that you know that mm. are having no fun and are just feeling pitiful about the world. You know I'm a highly optimistic mm. person and I'm also a bit of a shit stirrer. Mm. You know so I want to have fun at work. <laughs> I want to get up to mischief. I want yeah. us to laugh. I want us to I want us to have a lot of fun. A larrikin so, <laughs> sounds like a larrikin. I yeah I I I used to get in trouble quite a bit at school for being a bit of a stirrer so i i just really like teams who have an immense enjoyment of each other's yeah well that starts to sound like something else i want to talk about which is impact investment that's a good description of impact investment really, yeah, isn't it? yeah, you know, it is. the yeah. different well, people as one of the stakeholders yeah totally and getting people to work on things put put things together but coming from different perspectives and working together on yeah. you know, towards a, a, a goal um obviously you've got a track record in impact investment and I wanted to kind of ask you a couple of things about it from your first hand experience um, whether you're a real believer in impact investment because there is some well not not some there are different views emerging mm. in Australia is my observation as to the, the, the impact market and how it's going to develop and there are mm. people who are very positive and others who are finding it tough um, how do you see impact investment fitting into this social capital ecosystem we've got I think it's just one part of the ecosystem that's got to be there and, and got to be there for it to be a functioning ecosystem so um, we've done two impact investments one an equity deal in 2012 and then a debt deal uh, in in 2015 mm. first one was 300,000 the second one was two and a half million mm. um, so we couldn't have scaled our enterprise without it and it's been, yeah, it's been a really big part of our growth story, but it's been one of many parts that we've had to bring together. So, you know, I think I added up at one point that we'd had kind of 13 different sources of capital, mm. um, anywhere from money coming from crowdsourcing to government granting mm. to um, to all the, obviously all the kind of the bootstrapping stuff you do at the yeah. front end where, you, you know, you're funding everything yourself. Um, and... All of those types of capital behave in different ways and have different ways of interacting with each other. But I think, I think what we also miss if we don't, if we just think about it as a, a you know financial capital market, 
if we're not actually thinking about value and how does value get created and financial capital is just one really small part of the value creation process and and I think what social enterprises are, are quite good at doing is seeing a bigger ecosystem of types of capital so whether or not it's social capital or environmental capital or political capital you know and and thinking about harnessing all of those things yeah. to point them in a certain direction to to bring about a certain result so I and I also think you know for those who are probably cynical about it I I I'm so glad that we went down the route of um, impact investment. But one of the things that really has surprised me and delighted me, I guess, um, is probably, you know, I, I would talk about investors being, you know, I'd like us to have our own term pretty much for mm. impact investors. I kind of think of them as invested, you know, right. the invested. Yes. Because what I've found is people the the impact investors that we've had and we've had I think what are we talking seven investors now and they are invested in every sense they are invested not just with their you know by opening their wallets but Mm. they've invested time they've entered invested relationships they broker connections Uh, if I think about someone like Jeff Harris who who um, was the invest was the supporter and investor who bought us our property yeah. that we've done our big flagship site at in Collingwood, but you know for someone like Jeff, incredible generosity in what he's done for us, but he's given us just as much generosity of time. You know, really, yeah. really yeah. amazing businessman, who you know co-founder of the Flight Centre mm. and incredibly business savvy man, but. What he's done is, you know, for year after year after year, every month sat down as a mentor, sharing his knowledge and, and sharing uh-huh. his insights into our business and, and rolling up his sleeves. Um, but the same, you know, what we're certainly finding now as we scale as well is that those, you know, those invested become customers of ours. We become, we start doing business together. Yeah. And so the the relationship goes from you know what what could be quite one dimensional in the first place to a really rich multifaceted investment you know uh, you know multi dimensional mm. relationship that i think i haven't seen that happen often just in in the kind of standard investment no. um, investment market no it's unique isn't it um there are a lot of people i run into who work in as as i say social enterprise but more more uh, more often more traditional charities who are looking at impact investment and I th- I would say a lot of the time they're not quite ready for it yeah um, sometimes they are and sometimes another thing you see is that they might be ready for it but they've probably overestimated <laughs> what this is going to do for them it's yeah. not you know it's not the absolute um, global panacea that they yeah. think it's going yeah. to be you think about the different groups that are out there looking at this what what advice would you give them having gone down the path and done it a couple mm. of times? A couple of things. One is make sure those investors are the right investors. So I always say, you know, with anything, you know, find the right partners. Yeah. You know, it, anything that we're doing is is a connection of like-minded, values-aligned people. So who, you know, who your investors are going to be is really, really critical. Mm. Um, it's really easy if you're struggling for money to... You know, just grasp at the yeah. fastest money yeah. that's around there, and that would—that's a really big mistake. Um, so knowing when to say no to money, I mm. think, is really critical. But the other thing I think um, there's often not a realization I think around 
the process to get investment ready. And I think that's in both directions. I think from from the investor perspective, you often you know there's often not a realization about the amount of capacity building that's going to be needed to be done back into the organisation to get it you know investment ready. But also the same for the social enterprise. You know, if someone had told me, hey, when you started life as a plant biologist, you're going to end up sitting around with a whole bunch of investment bankers mm. and lawyers and That's accountants, right. you know, and talking about, you know, million-dollar deals, I just would have, you know, well, I probably wouldn't have embarked upon you know, this direction. It just, it was so far from yeah. what I would have expected would have happened. So, so often there's just such a skill deficit in both, you know, or knowledge kind of, deficit in both directions yep. of understanding about the reality of the time it's going to take the amount of capacity building that has to happen and if I think about if I think about NAB who did um, NAB and SVA who did the two and a half million dollar deal with us uh, and then that was done and that, that was brought out then by Westpac but particularly at the front end with a NAB you know the transaction cost for a great big bank doing a two and a half million dollar deal. Now, mm. in our end, it was such a gigantic deal for us. Mm. You know, it was it was groundbreaking in what it did for us. But the amount of work, you know, the transaction cost for us would have been hundreds of thousands of dollars yeah. in reality yep. to get ready yep. to do that transaction. For NAB, it was almost like it was too small a deal to, to be worth the effort because yep. it was so tiny. It's a common problem for the Whereas banks. what we were finding again and again, we just spent years having these circular conversations with anyone who would want to have a conversation about impact investment. And what we were finding is the the impact investment funds, you know, the two and a half million dollars was just too big for most of them. Yeah. So we ended up with you know an institutional investor. But for them, it was too small. So you're in these this weird kind of in-between space that you're, you know, these kind of deals most of the time are going to be pioneering because we haven't done them yeah. yet. So just trying to figure out how the hell do we structure this thing? How do we make it worth, worthwhile everyone's time? Are we building something that's, you know, replicable or a process that we can mm. then start to do again and again? So, yes, we might have a really huge transaction cost at this front end, but we're going to knowledge capture and make sure then yeah. that we can keep on sharing that, that knowledge. The, talking about them as deals is a really um, good way to put it, I think, as well, because at the stage we're at, at least in Australia, with impact investment, most of them are truly deals as opposed to products. This is what people think yes. about them. You might put it in the form of a product at the end, but at the end yeah. of the day you've negotiated a deal, which That's I think exactly is important right. for people to understand is yes. if you don't know the people that you might do the deal with and you don't have those relationships and to use your word you're not they're not invested yes you're probably not going to get very far f from that point alone yeah. so you've got to think of it as a deal that you can negotiate with the people around you and who are invested in that process by the way i think you should maybe think about starting a social enterprise called investors <laughs> and you should do consulting to get people investment ready because I'm, I'm sure people could learn awful lot oh, from look, experience. i mean there's some great groups doing that already um but First-hand experience counts for a lot, though, right? <laughs> now, I'm going to, uh, rather than discuss bad um, half-baked business ideas that I come up with mid-conversation, <laughs> mid I want to go to a couple of things because um, we're, we're running out of time. First of all, uh, on the philanthropy side, coming in to support ventures like yours, uh, one of the challenges in Australia is that traditionally philanthropists have been quite conservative as a, as a mm -hmm. very general statement. Yeah. Uh, there's always been a lot of pioneer and stuff, and, uh, but I'm interested in philanthropy as risk capital. Yeah, yeah. What's your view on on what what do you think? Let me rephrase it. What would you like Australian philanthropists to think about in relation to um, their 
their funding yeah. and the degree it can be considered risk capital? Look, I think that's a good way of thinking about it. In reality, most social enterprises that I see you know, being built are not going to get to financially sustainable in a decade. Uh, that's the ones that are trying to scale. So it's going to take a lot of years before you're standing on your own feet. So to give you a sense, we're at year nine now um, and we're 70% self-funded. We're, you know, I think it'll take us probably another three years to get to 100%. Um, but the, you know, and the scaling, you know, the scaling that we now need to get to go from kind of seventy to one hundred percent is is really really large. Mm. Um, we're working in a low margin industry, so if you've got five to ten percent profit margins and you're trying to do all this extra social stuff, um, you're bringing probably at least a good twenty percent of extra operating overhead to your business yeah. in a low margin industry. So it's going to be slow and it's going to be expensive. Um, so I think. You, realistically, you're not going to be investment ready for many, many, many years. Um, and so where are you going to get the money in the meantime? Yeah. If, if your business isn't going to be scaled yet, you've either got to get it from governments or philanthropists or by selling a kidney. So let's assume that you don't <laughs> want to do the latter. A, yeah. So I think, you know, probably the riskiest, you know, the, the most risk um, capital is, is the in-kind stuff. It's the time that we all spend at right. the front end. So... So it's all that bootstrapping stuff that we do. It's the it's the working you know in the middle of the night when you've got a harebrained idea, mm. and it's and it's all those people that are giving time to, to try and see if that harebrained idea has got legs. And but once you've kind of moved out of that, you know that dreaming kind of crazy idea phase, you're going to need years and years of, of philanthropy. I I think for most social yeah. enterprises, and. If I think about probably, oh, probably our three, our three first funders. You know, the first were Danish philanthropists, um, and one of the other early ones were a group called Dyson um, Dyson Foundation, but run by a guy called John Dyson, who's a venture capitalist. Um, runs a group called Starfish Ventures. And if I think about the different, you know, the different groups that we attracted philanthropy from in the early days, it was often entrepreneurs or venture capitalists or you know people yeah. who were essentially investing in us and our idea um, in a pretty risky you know they mm. were taking a risk at the front end and if I think about those first Danes you know they it, it was a calculated risk but we had never built a social enterprise before and and they gave us over seven hundred thousand yeah, dollars so it was a really big mm. chunk of money mm. for two girls from Australia who you know Flew to Copenhagen and they were going to have have you know about an hour conversation with us and they grueled us for six hours about our feasibility study, but you know a plant biologist and a clinical psychologist deciding to start a homeless youth social enterprise in hospitality, you know it would be easy to go that's On the crazy. Side of the world. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I think um, I think the same way as venture capitalists often are investing in the entrepreneurs. I think it's probably not dissimilar to venture philanthropists yeah. who are investing in the social entrepreneurs. They're spotting, you know, they're talent scouts really, and they're they're spotting yeah. talent and and trying to get a sense of how you know how this person's vision. But do they have both kind of that ability to do strategy and operation? Mm. So they're just not just good at persuasion, but they're gonna you know they're gonna get mm. shit done as well. Mm. So I think um, what we probably did really well at the early stages just do lots of planning you know spend a good 
you know, couple of years, seeing what was happening around the world, visiting mm. social enterprises around mm. the globe, um, and doing lots and lots of really solid planning. But yeah, that front end, at, you know, that startup stuff mm. is absolutely risk capital. Having said that, you know, if I think about the other types of philanthropy that have kind of followed in behind that, you know, it's probably the the more cautious philanthropy. Yeah. It's the big foundations, you know, where they've been going, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of years that might not have quite the same risk appetite. And then way, way down the other end is government granting. You yeah. Know, where, like, you know, 1% of our, sure. or less than 1% we get from government grants. But, you know, not not much risk being taken down there. But you need all of that. And I think philanthropy can play at the really risky end. Yeah. Where you're in startup land, you know, backing, backing, you know, the entrepreneurs through to then we still need a lot of philanthropy in the scaling process as well. See, if you if you're going to get a twenty year philanthropy grant, then it's great to be there at that that later stage. But if not, it kind of creates a a, a level of unsustainability totally. and a risk, which is why I'm thinking that. Um, Philanthropy has a really, really important role at those early stages totally. because there's no expectation of a financial return. Yeah, but um, they can help create, you know, fan the flames and create yeah. the impact later on. Yeah, wouldn't it be great if we actually had? Um, we don't really have much transparency in the philanthropy area um, per se. But wouldn't it be great if um, foundations, rather than just identifying the cause areas they worked in, gave themselves some type type of risk appetite? Yeah. and told yeah, you, totally. well, we. We're interested in you know um, early stage early startups. Yeah, yeah. But we're not. We're interested in mature, proven models. We're yes. interested in you know because then you, totally. then people could go and save and, a lot of time. And also, they the were right thinking funders. about multi year stuff. You know mm. what what we got is not not only that, that phenomenal gift of you know over seven hundred thousand dollars from those Danish philanthropists, but what they were giving us in giving us a large amount was time. You know, they were giving us a couple of years of not having to scramble to get more money. And those early years of having a decent amount where you're just putting your head down and you're just building stuff. Because the second, you know, the second you're, you've got a, an operating business, it can just be this mad scramble. You, you can end up just sprinting to try and get money to stay alive. But those early years you need, it's when you need your most kind of flexibility you, you you know you're you're really quickly trying to spot what's not working what's working hey we're going to quickly have to get out of that we're going to have to pivot fast mm-hmm. so you know we were going to be a, a whole fleet of street food carts all over yeah. melbourne and we're really not that thing anymore um well we were never that thing actually we we started with one you know street food cart on fed square and it took literally months for me to go actually this is not going to work out yeah. Um, so our you're still working with exactly the same young people, but our business model is totally different, and that really only was possible because you know we we weren't so tied in to what we had to do. We had a flexibility of that philanthropic yeah. funding. The worst thing you can get at that front end is this highly formulaic. You know, this is this is the outputs and the outcomes, and and it's you're mm. so kind of tied Constrained. in yeah. that you can't you can't move a dollar sideways, you can't move an hour sideways. Yeah. You just you end up kind of fenced into this stuff that it, it, you you end up kind of dying for lack of flexibility and not and not being able to grab and and. It's kind the of last evolve. thing you need, isn't it? Yeah, it totally. Is. Yeah. yeah. Well, it goes back to what you were saying, maybe even before. Um, in terms of being prepared to say no because it might be the wrong type of money. Now, we're out of time, um, so I'm going to ask you one last question, which is um, 
to give a piece of advice to someone who's thinking of, of becoming a social entrepreneur or starting a social enterprise? The first question that I always ask would be social entrepreneurs is what's their current side project or side projects? Anyone who you know I think is entrepreneurial has always got some crazy ass ideas that they they've got some side projects running. Yeah. Um, so I'll always want to know what are you tinkering with, and then you know if if you're not tinkering, I'll go how come. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the other thing is you can't learn social enterprise through a book, or you know, or just going to uni. Um, I I think you've just got to roll your sleeves up. So go and find, you know, the nearest thing to what you want to build yourself. Go and volunteer your time. Go and apply for a job. Roll your sleeves up and work within a social enterprise. Do. Um, just do. And, and what we've found um, really reliably is, you know, in addition to kind of the direct doing that we, you know, the impact that we have on young people, we've probably realised that, Part of the value, you know, the impact that we create, you know, in Melbourne is by creating social enterprise practitioners. You know, we've had a heap of our own staff come from business, grapple deeply in this, you know, way harder, more complex, you know, environment. You know, if I think about staff who come from scaling really large hospitality ventures nationally, so really incredibly operationally skilled. But getting into social, you know, getting in, into our environment, thinking it was going to be much the same, and going, whoa, this is hard. Um, but you, you're in it. It's a complex system. You're learning about the different tensions and the trade-offs that you're making. And we've now had a heap of staff, you know, leave over time to go and start their own social enterprises. Yeah. And we're, we're helping a staff member at the moment who's just left to go and start a social enterprise cafe out in regional Victoria. Mm. Well, she's been with us for five years. She goes with our absolute blessing, but every bit of help that we can give her to go and start her social enterprise, we're giving her. And so I just don't think you can do these things just as, you know, theoretical exercises mm-hmm. or textbook stuff. The same way as we, you know, all that kind of tacit knowledge that mm-hmm. you, you normally have to learn tacit knowledge from artisans or experienced people who who teach you yeah. that stuff. I think that's really the only way you can learn how to be a practitioner in these things so go and find a social enterprise and roll your sleeves up yeah and then be prepared to see people go off and do their own thing it's a bit like for a scientist like cell division isn't it you can see totally part part, not part of a big part of the impact that you're going to create over your I almost call it career but I'm going to call it life because of what you said before is going to be as much about what those people then go on to do those ripples someone once said to me something like oh but you know why? Why would you give you know staff development opportunities that meant that they were going to leave and mm-hmm. and start up something that was going to be a competitor? And I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah. Like, that's kind of the very best thing. Like, the more social, you know, we want to see an ecosystem of business that's just flourishing with social enterprises. So the more we can catalyze more social enterprises in the world, the better. And yeah. There is not one single business, not one so, you know, single social enterprise or one single non-profit out there that we would see as competition. Every person that's out there, no matter what organisational form, is a potential collaborator. So, you know, it's really short-sighted to go, hey, we're creating a competitor for ourselves. <laughs> we're creating potential collaborators. Now, we could be part of their supply chain. Yeah. They could be the long-term employers of our young people. Like, you know, there's, there's probably... 
20 ways straight away you know that you could think of that you could you could work Absolutely. with people that you're helping yeah. kind of build so and even if you never work with them if they've gone off and then they do positive things totally and you set them off on that path then it's a fantastic thing yeah. that's, well, that's really what you're in the business is if you're helping we're in the business of social change and part of that is catalyzing more social change yeah um, so yeah if I, I hope that one of the legacies we'll leave is just more social enterprise practitioners who have learned how to do these things and the training wheels, you know, they, they got where we it's straight. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that's going to happen. And um, congratulations on everything you've done so far. And I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. I haven't talked to you today. I'm sure you're going to enjoy doing what you achieve in the future as well. So the best I of, best could of not that. be having more fun. <laughs> I, I literally have created, I think, the world's most perfect job for myself. <laughs> um, I couldn't, you know, it's it's the most, it's the hardest thing, but it's, I, I am having so much fun. Every year I think I have more fun. So we're, you know, we're coming wow. into our, soon coming into our 10th year. Um, but yeah, we're just warming up. Brilliant. Well, <laughs> congratulations and thanks for talking to us today. It's my pleasure. That's it for this episode of How I Did It. For more from Coda, visit codacapital.com or email philanthropy at codacapital.com.